Well, hey, we are glad that you are here with us online checking out the day's message. And before we get into it, let me just stop uh, and do something we don't normally do. Let me talk to you a little bit about what we're doing here. My name is Chip. I'm one of the pastors here at The Orchard. And uh, we're really glad that you are tuning in to stay connected with us through this online service. You know, we do this not just for convenience, even though, man, it really is convenient when you have things going on to be able to stay, you know, a part of what's happening at the church online. But we do it more for the connection connection side so that you can stay a part of what's happening at the church while you're gone. And so if because of things going on with the pandemic or maybe just the busyness of life, you've had to disconnect from our in-person services, yes, we're glad that you're here. But more than that, we want you to keep connected. Reach out to us. Let us know that you're watching. We'd still love to meet you for coffee or lunch, to talk to you, to be available to you because we believe that you're just as much a part of our church as everybody else. So take a minute. Let us know you're here. Let us know how we can connect with you because we're still one church church, one family, and we're glad that you're here with us today. Well, today is a little bit different in and of itself because what we're doing is at all of our locations, a campus pastor Sunday. And what that means is that each location pastor is going to really speak what God has laid on their heart. Normally, AJ gets to do that for you here online as the online location pastor, but he has his hands full with a little bundle of joy named Sawyer. So I'm filling in for him today. And I want to share with you one of my favorite passages of scripture. It's a story that if you grew up at least around church, you're probably familiar with. If you grew up in church, I know you're familiar with. But it's a story that really captures our imagination. It's a story that really makes us lean in to who Jesus was, how he lived, and the encounters that he had throughout his ministry. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at this story. It's found in John's Gospel, the eighth chapter. So if you have your Bible there with you, or maybe you're watching on your iPad and you're pulling it up on your phone or whatever, we're going to look at John chapter 8, and we're going to read verses 1 through 11 together, all right? So we're going to be in John chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 1. Let's kind of read the story together and then talk about it. John 8, 1 says this, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he went to the temple again, and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law of Moses, it commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And they asked him this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. And Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. And when they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued riding on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men, and only he was left with the woman in the center. And when Jesus stood up, he said to them, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, go. And from now on, don't sin anymore. I mean, that's a story that just kind of makes you lean in, right? Like you may be watching this and you don't have any church background. That's the first time you've ever heard that story. And it just kind of makes you lean in because there's a lot going on in this story. It's a very dramatic story that has, you know, a climax of resolution. You're not sure which way it's going. How is Jesus going to answer? What's going to happen to the woman? And and, and I think that, you know, the more we read this, sometimes we lose this, that when this happened, Man, can you imagine the drama there? Can you imagine the scene there at the temple when all this was going on, people not knowing which way this was going to work out? 
Well, I think there's an important lesson for us in this story. There's an important lesson for us in this encounter. And so what I want to do is let's, let's look at it a little more closely, and I think we'll be able to see some of the things that are going on. So as we kind of dig into it today, I, I want to do that by taking this approach. I want to look at the three different players that are inside of this encounter, the three different people who were involved with this confrontation Let's start with maybe the one who was very literally at the center of it all, the woman, the woman who was caught in adultery. She is literally the central person in this encounter between Jesus and the religious leaders. Uh, It says that when she was caught in adultery, when she was seized, that she was forced into the center there of the temple. So really, she is at the center of the story. Here's what we know about her. If you go back and read the text, it says that she was caught in adultery. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. That's the one that we use at our locations. And that word caught is how they translate it. But really, the the real literal meaning behind that word is not just caught as in if on accident or in a stroke of good luck. The word literally means is that she was seized. This is a vivid picture of her being snatched away, probably out of the very act of adultery is when she was seized. It's not a stretch to think that being seized there in the act, that she was immediately drugged through the streets of Jerusalem into the temple. We don't know what level of clothing she was able to grab and put with her, but she was publicly humiliated and shamed as she's been seized in the act of adultery, dragged to the temple and thrown at Jesus's feet, placed in the center of this conversation, this uh, confrontation, I should say. Well, here's what I see in this woman. When I see in this woman is I see a picture of vulnerability. Like vulnerability is not something that we talk a lot about. Being vulnerable means that we are in a state where we are open to be hurt. We are open uh, to be done wrong, let down, uh, abused. And this woman was just that. She's the picture of vulnerability. And it started by placing herself in a vulnerable position. She was caught in sin. And I think it's important as we look at this woman, and no doubt she's a sympathetic character in the story in that Jesus ultimately is going to show her grace. But we need to be very clear, she was caught in sin. No excuses, no defenses. And according to the Mosaic law of the Old Testament, she was very literally to be put to death. It is clear in the book of Deuteronomy, it's clear in the book of Leviticus that her being a woman caught in the act of adultery had no excuses. Again, she had no defense. There was no reason that was good enough and she was to be put to death. She had no hope. She had no power. She had no privilege. She was at the mercy of her accusers. Now, here's the thing we don't know. We don't know what circumstances in her life led her to this moment. You know, I, I, I think it's safe to say, I don't know her, I don't know much more about her than what we just read, but it's safe to say that, man, she didn't intend for her life to get to this point. She didn't intend for things to work out like this. What probably happened is what happens to a lot of people. Maybe it's happened to you. Maybe it's happened uh, to someone you know, but they made choices that did not seem like big choices at the time, but they led to worse choices and bigger mistakes. And ultimately, you find yourself in a place that you never thought you'd be. And man, that is exactly what sin does to us. 
Sin takes us places that we don't want to go. It leaves us longer than we want to stay, and it costs us more than we ever thought we'd have to pay. And that's what happened to this woman. I don't know what those circumstances were, but I know that she is here caught in sin and has to feel like her world is turned upside down. But then, on one side of that woman stands her accusers. The scribes and the Pharisee. John tells us very specifically, it wasn't just generic religious leaders. It was the scribes who were in charge with the preservation of the law, oftentimes the interpretation of the law, and the Pharisees, which were the religious conservative arm of Judaism in that day. They were one of, if you will, for our frame of reference, one of the religious parties in Jesus's day. So the scribes and the Pharisees catch this woman and they bring her to Jesus. And it's important for us to understand that inside of this Jewish context, both of these groups, the scribes and the Pharisees, held very sizable religious, cultural, and political power in that day. They had power, they had influence, and they had authority. And what we see here in John chapter 8 is them leverage that power, influence, and authority to trap Jesus. John says very specifically in the text that we read that they did this in order to trap him. They take the woman, they bring her to the feet of Jesus, and they ask him the question. They say, Jesus, in the Mosaic law, in the Old Testament, this woman is supposed to be stoned to death. What do you think we should do to her? So they have their power, they have their authority, they have their influence, their expertise, and they're leveraging that to trap Jesus. They're trying to see how he would answer They knew that if he said, yes, the Old Testament law says that she needs to be put to death, that the Roman officials who governed that area during the time and held the power of capital punishment, that the Roman Empire would never grant them permission to put this woman to death. And so it would either force Jesus to form open rebellion against Rome or bow down to Rome, even admitting that it's not what the Old Testament law demanded of them. Or... If Jesus were to say, no, she shouldn't be put to death, then he would be denying the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law, and then those scribes and Pharisees who held that cultural religious power would leverage the people against him. So they thought they had him trapped. All their plans were working out, right? We've been in that place where we thought we had everything figured out. We thought we had all the plans laid out. They knew they had Jesus just where they wanted him. But see, what's even worse is not just were they leveraging their power, influence, and authority to trap Jesus. They were leveraging their power, influence, and authority against this vulnerable woman to make that point. Like, it wasn't just that they trapped Jesus with a hypothetical. They found this woman caught in sin, yes, but still a woman made in the image of God and used their cultural, political, and religious power to make her not be a person anymore, but just a point in their greater argument. And see, I think it's really obvious that they had no real care about her adultery or what to do with her. They were just using her to make the point. And I think one of the things that jumps out and screams this is that when they seized her, they seized only her. I mean, let's just be honest. It takes two to tango, if you know what I'm saying. But yet she is the only one who's taken from the home. She's the only one who is seized in the act and brought before Jesus, the man whoever he was, was left out. And beyond that, 
they even twisted the Mosaic law to fit their agenda. Well, Chip, what do you mean by that? You just said that the law said she should be put to death. Yes, the law says that, but that's not specifically what the law says. You can write this note down if you're taking notes, or maybe, you know, go ahead and, and thumb over and look at it right now. But go look at Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, maybe the clearest place where it talks about the punishment for adultery. And yet in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, it certainly indicates that the woman who was caught in adultery should be put to death, but it specifically says that both, both man and woman, should be put to death. And when you read the context of this verse here in Leviticus, when you read context of the more extensive passage in Deuteronomy, they are both directed at the man himself. The context, the thrust of the text is directed at the man, not the woman. So yes, the law did say technically she should be put to death, but they ignored the greater context of the law, narrowed in on this woman because they did not care about her as a person. They were just proving a point and pushing an agenda. They had an agenda, right? They were trapping Jesus, and they were using everything they had at their disposal to push this agenda. So we see the woman, we see the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders, and then we see Jesus. Man, like the religious leaders, Jesus had sizable, and at this point in his ministry, a growing religious, cultural, and political power. At the point in ministry that we read in John chapter 8, Jesus is on his ascent in popularity inside of the nation. He's attracting crowds wherever he goes. He is revered, invited to meet with important people. Matter of fact, if you look at the very beginning of our text, all the way back in verse 2, it says that Jesus was seated in the temple as he taught them. That's not something that a Jewish person would have rushed by because being able to have a seat in the temple to teach was a sign of respect. It was a sign of esteem. It was a sign of authority. But beyond this, <laughs> despite any cultural, religious, political power that anybody in this passage had, Jesus himself, the sinless son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is the only source of real power and authority that we see in this passage. See, it wasn't just that Jesus had this cultural influence, but he had the power of creation, the power of heaven at his call. But unlike the religious leaders, they may have shared uh, the idea that they both had power and influence or whatever, but unlike these religious leaders who used that power and influence to push their agenda and to prove a point, what does Jesus do? Jesus leverages his power and influence to show grace to this woman who'd been caught in sin. There can't be a more stark contrast, can there? The scribes and the Pharisees use everything they have to push their agenda to make the point, forgetting about the person. And yet Jesus, who had a greater power and authority than they could ever imagine, leverages his power and authority to show grace to this very vulnerable woman. He went so far even, John tells us, to take on the posture of vulnerability when he addressed the religious leaders, right? He, he stoops down and he begins to write. Now, 
if you grew up in church, I'm sure that you've heard people speculate about what Jesus actually was writing. All we know is that he stooped down in the ground, not once but twice, and he began to, some translations say scribble in the sand. My favorite translation says doodle in the sand. And we don't know what he was writing. There has been speculation. Some say that what he was writing in the sand was the Ten Commandments, that he was reminding them of the entirety of the law. Some say that he was writing out the specific sins of those scribes and Pharisees who were confronting him and accusing the woman. And some say he wasn't really writing anything. He was literally just doodling in the ground. Well, I think what's important is not knowing what he wrote, but the posture he took in his writing. Now, hear me. At this moment, Jesus Christ, the sinless son of God, the crown jewel of heaven, did not stand in judgment of this woman or even these religious leaders. He could have, and we know one day he will, but yet here, he didn't. Instead of standing in judgment, he stooped down and began to write. That word stooped is a really interesting word because when we think somebody stooping over, we maybe think of an older person who, who has a lean to them when they walk, but that's not the word at all. The word here is that Jesus bowed down and began to write. Jesus bowed down. What a posture of vulnerability. What a posture of humility. What a posture of grace that the Son of God made flesh would bow down and identify with this woman, not in her sin, but in her vulnerability. He met her where she was, but he didn't leave her there. On the backside of the encounter, after all the accusers had walked away because none of them was without sin and could throw the first stone, Jesus tells this woman to go. But before he tells her to go, he says, go and sin no more. See, it's important, I think, for me that we point out that this corrective conversation happens on the other side of Jesus meeting this woman in her vulnerable state and showing her grace. Yes, Jesus says, look, this sin is sin. And he never denies that the Old Testament law says she should be put to death. Matter of fact, we know that Paul would write a few years later that all of our sin earns death. But yet here in this moment, Jesus says, go and sin no more. See, I think the reason for me, and maybe you'll get this, that I love this story so much is because it's a microcosm of what Jesus does for each one of us, isn't it? I mean, just think about the story. Jesus sees each of us just like this woman. He sees us vulnerable and exposed in our sin. Now, I know that we may think that our sin's hidden. We may think that other people don't see it. We may think that we can cover it up. We may think that because it has become culturally acceptable, it doesn't matter. But the truth is, Jesus sees us just like he sees this woman, fully exposed, fully vulnerable in our sin. Our sin is not hidden in his sight. And yet, seeing us there, Jesus does not first stand in judgment. Instead, we are told that Jesus Christ takes on human flesh 
to come to this earth and meet us in our most vulnerable state. When you and I were without hope, when you and I are without defense, when you and I stood just like this woman with accusers and no advocate, Jesus came to meet us in our vulnerability. And just like this woman, he saves us from our accusers. Jesus comes in and says that all those who would repent of their sin and put their faith and trust in him would not simply have their sins forgiven, but we would be given his very righteousness, his very holiness. So it's not that the sins that you used to do, you can no longer be accused of. When we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, any sin, past, present, or future, is something that we can never be accused of because when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. He sees Jesus' righteousness. That's why he transforms us and gives us this new life. He meets us where we are, He loves us in our sin, and yet he changes us to go and to sin no more. But just like this woman, remember, it's important that we understand this happens on the backside of that encounter with Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, hey, go get your stuff together and then come see me. No, we come to Jesus in our sin, surrounded by accusers, broken and vulnerable. He loves us, forgives us, saves us and then transforms us to go and live a new life there on the backside. But I think even beyond that, we see here in this text that Jesus is the perfect picture of what it looks like to take all the power and authority of creation and yet leverage it for the good of his people. Do you ever think about that? What would you do if you had that power, right? What would you do if you had all of that authority? We know, we've heard the statement, right? Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But here Jesus is with the full power of the creator of the universe and he leverages it for a woman caught and broken by her sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says that he made the one, God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. Why? So that we in him might become the righteousness of God. That's just crazy to me. That Jesus leverages that for us. So here's what I want to tell you. Here's where I want us to get to today. If Jesus the Son of God, Jesus, our Savior, Jesus, our King and Lord, if he has used his influence, his power, and his authority for us, what would it look like if we, his church, his people, his followers, used whatever influence, power, and authority we have for the sake of those around us? What would that look like? You think that could change things? You think that could start a revival? What would it look like if we, like Jesus, used our power and influence for the sake of those who are still vulnerable? And I'm just gonna get real with you. 
because I know that there's some of you who are watching this, you're listening to this, and you're saying, well, I, I don't know, that sounds like some of that woke stuff to me, talking about power and influence and privilege. So let me just say this, when the heck did that become woke? When the heck did leveraging our power and influence and authority and giftings for the good of others become liberal? I mean, I don't know about you guys, I grew up loving superheroes and I still love superheroes. Was Superman woke because he used whatever power he had to protect the innocent? Is Batman woke because he leveraged the wealth of his multi-billion dollar corporation to help orphans? No, we don't call those guys woke, we call those heroes. But yet I'm afraid we're close to becoming so shaped by the division of our culture that we think what Jesus did here is somehow different than what we should be doing every day. No, if we are a follower of Jesus, we are called to live like him and to love like him and to leverage our lives for the most vulnerable in society and for those who are farthest away from him. We've spent time in the book of Revelation. Guys, this is what it looks like to live in a new kingdom. We just finished a series called Blessed. This is what we mean when we say we are called to be a blessing. We have to leverage who we are and what we've been given for the sake of others. Now, the distinction is we don't just do it so that they can have a better life here, even though there's nothing inherently wrong in that. We do it so that they can have eternal life after this life is done. The reason we are called to leverage any influence, any power, any authority that we have for others is so that they can find the life that we have found in Christ. This is what it means, guys, when we at the orchard talk about being for others. Let's be a church that's known to be for others and not just for ourselves. And I would challenge you today. Are you using what God's given you to make a point? Maybe on your social media, maybe at your kid's baseball game, maybe at your Thanksgiving meal here in a couple of months. Are you using what you have to make a point or are you using it for people, for those that God has placed around you to help them find a relationship with him? My prayer for us as a church is that we would be a church that is for others. You've heard me say this before. Let's be someone for those who have no one. Because when we are, that's when we're like Jesus. Let me pray for you. God, thanks for this day, this time, and this word. And God, I pray that you would stir our hearts to want to be genuinely for others. That we would not use any blessings that you've given us in our life simply for us but we would leverage those blessings. We would leverage any influence, any power, any authority, any wealth, any talent, any skill. We would leverage these things for the good of our neighbor and for those who are far from you. God, and when we seek to live and love like Jesus and operate this way, that we would see many come to find new life in Christ, that they would turn from their sin and go and sin no more and that their eternity would be changed. In your name we pray, amen.